It's the 5th of May, 2015, and this is episode 210. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. On today's show, we talk with Eric Voorhees about the early days of Bitcoin, BitInstant, Coinapult, the story of Satoshi Dice, his new venture Shapeshift, and more. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. Thank you so much for joining us. Adam and Andreas are here with me, Stephanie, today, and we are joined by two special guests. We've got John, who's the head of operations at Shapeshift.io, and also Eric, who's the CEO at Shapeshift.io. Hey, guys, thanks so much for being on Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hello. Thanks for having us. Hey, everyone. The way I know Eric, at least, is from the early days of Bitcoin. And when I say early days, I guess I mean like around 2010, 2011, that kind of time frame when Bitcoin was still really new. Satoshi had just sort of just disappeared from the scene and uh, Bitcoin was starting to become more widely known, but it was still a really new area. And there was just so much potential that certain people could see really clearly ahead in the future. And Eric was one of those people and started um, some businesses that I think were pretty formative to Bitcoin. Do you want to just start by talking about that, Eric? Maybe we can talk about how you found out about Bitcoin in the first place and what lit your fire about it. Tell me about the good old days. Well, so Stephanie, I knew you before Bitcoin in the in our pre in our pre Bitcoin lives. I didn't want to out you as a free stater. Oh, I wear that badge proudly on my on my sleeve. I had moved to New Hampshire as part of the Free State Project up there with all the the crazy libertarians that are trying to leave people alone. And I found out about Bitcoin from some other free stater up there who posted on his Facebook page some article about this digital currency that had appreciated by 50,000% since October. This would have been in um, early May of 2011, right before the first bubble. So I, I thought that that was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever seen because financial assets do not move to that extent unless there's some something nefarious going on. Um, nothing gains 50,000% in six months. And so I read this article and it was this stupid thing called Bitcoin and I was like, oh, what is this? And um, I was highly skeptical for about 30 minutes. And then what stuck with me was when I read that there was no company behind it. There's no organization behind it. There's no central server or office. There was no CEO. And that clicked immediately with me because I understood why it would continue to grow. Because there have been prior digital currencies and things like eGold. But all those things have this terrible vulnerability, which is the company in charge is the liability. That company can be shut down. So any company that tries to be too innovative will get shut down because it has an office. And Bitcoin was immensely innovative without an office. And so that just seemed like the, the perfect combination of things to make something um, really change the world. And then I had one of those you know, moments kind of like Roger Veer where I, I didn't eat or sleep for a few days. And he, he went to the hospital for dehydration. I, I wasn't that bad, but... Oh my gosh, I didn't know about that. Yeah, he, uh, the, the woman he was with, Ayaka, who's now his wife, she uh, had to take him to the hospital because he stayed up like six or seven days without eating or drinking and almost died of dehydration. So, uh, and then he, and then maybe on like the, th- the third day or whatever, he was reborn as, as Bitcoin Jesus. <laughs> that is a great story. Yeah. So I kept myself fed, but yeah, I just became completely obsessed and stopped doing everything responsible and productive that I was doing and just dove into the, into the Bitcoin world and, and watched every video I could, read every article I could, spent hours a day on the forums, and um, it's been my life ever since. Wow, cool. So, I mean, when did you first start thinking that you wanted to get involved with this in more of a uh, way as a, as a founder of a company? Like, when did the ideas start flowing about problems that could be solved in the Bitcoin world? Well, fundamentally, I'm a capitalist, and I love to start businesses. And when I saw Bitcoin, I saw it both in, in this amazing way, both as this thing that would change the world for the good, and also this thing that I could make a lot of money with and build interesting projects. Uh, and usually people have to kind of choose between those two goals, right? Like doing something meaningful that changes the world or getting rich. And Bitcoin is amazing in that it actually provides the opportunity to do both. Uh, so that was immediately addicting to me. At what point did the ideas start flowing for for different projects that you actually wanted to work on? Probably right away. Like ideas are a dime a dozen, right? Like ideas come all the time. And what I've learned is it's generally much more about execution. 
But the first idea I had was, I don't think anyone knows about this one, but uh, the guy who introduced me to Bitcoin, we were making a, a VoIP connection system so that people could log onto a website, deposit Bitcoin, and then use it to call with VoIP to anywhere in the world. And we were, we were sort of building that, but we didn't really know what we were doing. And it was more just kind of a, a hobbyist project to, to get started with this stuff. But that was probably with a month of, of me learning about Bitcoin. That would have been 2011, right? 2011, yeah. This would have been sort of in the in the aftermath of the first bubble up to $30. Did you get that idea from Satoshi at all? Because I know like, well, before he disappeared in, in 2010, he was really into the idea of websites using Bitcoin for micropayments. Mm-hmm. Was that anything that you took inspiration from? Um, no, but certainly the usability of Bitcoin for that kind of thing was apparent. I have not actually studied Satoshi's writings as much as a, a proper acolyte should, but uh, I'm sure there's all sorts of wisdom in there. So, Eric, I remember back in, I guess it sort of started in 2011, but especially 2012, the Porcupine Freedom Festival, which is something we've talked about on the show before, um, is a is a freedom festival in New Hampshire. And it's attended by a lot of people who are interested in the Free State Project like we are. And there was a lot of Bitcoin use going on, even though this event takes place in a campground in the middle of the woods where it's like hopeless to get even 3G cell phone signal. Somehow <laughs> these people were able to rig things up so that Bitcoin transactions could happen in the middle of the woods. And it was actually one of the most active areas for Bitcoin. And I know like you and Roger Ver and Charlie Schrem, and actually I think even Peter Vicenis came one year. He told me that he left Porkfest less of a libertarian than he came. <laughs> so maybe he, he doesn't count. But uh, <laughs> but you guys were doing like this table to do Bitcoin outreach, right? Yeah, but that wasn't the first one. So like the first Porkfest I was at after Bitcoin was the one in 2011. And that would have been like a month or two after I learned about it. So I was obviously pumped and was probably talking about Bitcoin and nothing else. And there was not much adoption at all or knowledge of Bitcoin at that point. And this was still back when the broad libertarian community was incredibly cynical and skeptical of Bitcoin because it was not gold. And a lot of people had this feeling that gold needed to be money because it was physical. Uh, and they didn't understand that gold was simply the best money that we had had because of its attributes. And that if something with better attributes came along, it would make sense. They had this obsession with like intrinsic value, which I think Bitcoin really um, demolishes, despite this idea in Austrian economics, which is a school of economic thought that's really popular with the same libertarians, that value is subjective and that value is not intrinsic. It's exactly the opposite of the idea of intrinsic value. So I think the conflict between the idea of gold having intrinsic value, but all other value being subjective was really put to the test by Bitcoin. And now at this point, I guess everybody, even including Peter Schiff, who was one of the biggest proponents of the intrinsic value thing, has sort of come around to the idea that, yeah, maybe value is subjective. Yeah. And there's a lot of complicated questions in economics, but this seems to be one of the easy ones, right? Like, of course, value is subjective, right? What was the intrinsic value of gold before mankind existed? It didn't have any value. It was just another shiny rock in the ground. It didn't have any utility or value to anyone. And then when people started figuring out uses for that material, then it became useful and valuable for that reason. So the value comes from the person doing the valuing. And two different people with two different lives and purposes are going to value things very differently. Someone trying to make jewelry might find gold to be far more valuable than someone that's starving in the woods just trying to um, find his next meal. He won't care about gold at all. So it's, of course, subjective. And if you understand that, then it, it's not a very far leap to realize that anyone who finds the system of Bitcoin to be useful for something gives it value. And because there are only so many Bitcoins in existence, as long as there is anyone that wants to use the system for any purpose whatsoever, there's going to be a market price for the coins. And it really doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. And so all these ridiculous value arguments, you know, just because Mises said something 100 years ago, they I think they kind of betrayed a certain intellectual laziness within the uh, libertarian community. And people were sort of appealing to authority and listening to what prior economists had said about money and not realizing that the principles that they said about money can apply just as well to Bitcoin. And hopefully Bitcoin has showed them why they were wrong in those early days. The theory of why Bitcoin isn't really money is contradicted daily by the fact that many of us on this particular podcast have been living on Bitcoin for more than two years quite comfortably. Yeah, it's one of those things that you only need like one or two examples to disprove it. If you say Bitcoin's not money and then I go use it as money, I'm clearly correct. 
you can say that it's not widely accepted, which is totally true. You can say that maybe it's not good money, which is arguable, but you can't say that it's not money if people are using it for that. Yeah. So, so getting back to Porkfest, the Porcupine Freedom Festival, that's always sort of a good yearly, I guess, benchmark for me to compare like how Bitcoin was doing or like what the Bitcoin world was like at a certain time, a snapshot in June of each year. So from 2011 up to the present, when it's, it's going to be 2015, we're going to be going to Porkfest in a couple months. I don't know if you'll make it, Eric. You probably don't want to come to the US at all, but I'm going to be there. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the U.S. right now. Oh, you are? Wow. Yeah, I come to the U.S. all the time. For some reason, people think that I've been like exiled from the country. I thought it was a self-imposed exile, actually. I thought you just didn't want to come back, but it's good. that's good to know that you're going to... Yeah, I, I visit the U.S. all the time. Gotcha. Okay. So anyway, um, I remember I used to bring like literal rolls of silver to Porkfest, and I actually would get silver dimes and also like just 10th ounce silver pieces. Um, I think back in 2010, there was like this price spike of silver where it went up to 50 bucks an ounce. And I remember buying like some of these little 10th ounce chips of silver, which is just a tiny piece of silver. And they were like $5 each, you know, and now now they're probably worth, you know, uh, I guess less than half of that two bucks or something because the price of silver is down right now compared to that. It was so funny because I would be packing for pork fest and I'd be bringing these rolls of silver. And it was kind of ridiculous looking back on it to be carrying chunks of metal to so I could feel good about like bartering for food in the woods and things like that. It's just so much easier to have Bitcoin on a phone and bring that instead. Yeah. And this is what was so important for people to see was that like metals have some really good attributes in in their, uh, you know, the durability, the consistency between units, the scarcity, the fact that people can't print it out of nothing. But they're not perfect. You can't send silver or gold to your friend in another country. And the only way to do it is by mailing it, which takes a long time. Centralized e-gold types them where they're sending sort of a, a bearer token to that other person. And immediately you have to understand that governments around the world would never permit such a system to grow beyond a certain size because they can just take out over the, the company and shut down the office and then you're stuck with the government money again. So there was like a, a natural limit to how how precious metals could be used in commerce. They work great for storing wealth because you can just hold them in a vault. Um, and they work okay for like in-person bartering, although not really well. You can't divide it or recombine it very easily at all. But they don't work at all for international exchange unless you're trusting a party and that party will get destroyed if that system grows to a certain size. So why people that advocated non-state currencies didn't see the immediate benefits of Bitcoin, which had so many of the properties of gold, plus the fact that you could send it to anyone anywhere at near zero cost, I mean, that was like the most obvious thing that I'd ever come across. Yeah, totally. It took them a little while to come around, but they really did eventually. And we'll talk about that. But one more story first from uh, like, I think it was either 2011 or 2010, uh, when the Porkfest was not really a Bitcoin event. I remember there was a reporter from NPR Money there. And she was recording a transaction that was happening between a guy who was vending food and another guy who wanted to pay his tab uh, with gold. And he had this little few gram bar of gold that was worth a few hundred dollars. And he only had this one denomination of gold. And they had to like try to make it work so that he would eat enough food to equal out to the amount of gold. And like, <laughs> like it was just kind of ridiculous. And the, the reporter actually commented on it in her article, which came out later that year that, you know, you got to give them credit for being really on principle and motivated, <laughs> ideologically kind of motivated. But sometimes these people kind of take it to an extreme to try to go outside the system and use this non-governmental money. <laughs> They're kind of bending over backwards. Yeah. But as always, the market find way and the market created something that can move with far more fluidity and, and serve that kind of purpose far better. So thank, thank goodness that Satoshi did that. Indeed. So describe to me what it was like in like 2012 and 2013 when a lot more people started using Bitcoin at Porkfest. There were even the Lamasu Bitcoin ATM, which was also invented in New Hampshire. Those guys were doing a Bitcoin exchange right there. They were selling Bitcoin with through the, the vending machine. Of course, lots of people were vending goods and food and things like that for Bitcoin. And there was a satellite dish that was dragged into the campground to try to enhance the Wi-Fi <laughs> to make these transactions happen more smoothly. What was your experience like? So in 2011, probably like 5% of the vendors were accepting Bitcoin. And it was always very crude. Like there weren't even 
wallets for your phone back then. So that's how primitive it was. And then in 2012, at least half of the merchants were accepting Bitcoin and we had um, some normal wallets for phones, which made that a lot better. And by 2013, uh, which was the last time I was there, probably 95% of vendors accept Bitcoin at that point. So within a period of two years, it went from like, what the hell is this to, you know, anyone who respects themselves as a libertarian, you know, <laughs> if they're taking fiat government money and they're not taking this amazing new invention, then they're pretty much a fraud. And a lot of people kind of came to understand that. Right. So and one of those phone wallets was Coinapult, right, which you were involved with starting up. Yeah, well, Coinapult, uh, we didn't have a phone wallet, but we had an SMS wallet. And the SMS wallet right. was was a pretty cool, simple way to send coins between phone accounts with SMS. And the coins were all held in Coinapult's server, so the coins weren't actually moving. They were just trading accounts. But you could do it through SMS. So for a campground, it worked far better than trying to get you know Wi-Fi access out there. And we thought it would have a lot of use in third world countries as well. Tell me about the history of Coinapult and like when did you move on from that company? Because I know you're no longer... Well, hang on. Is that your first business too? Because that's where I want to go. Is uh, What was the first business that you started in the space? If it's Coinapult, let's talk about that. If not, let's not skip to that. Sure. The So the first one I started was called Feeds the Birds uh, with Ira, who I later co-founded Coinapult with. And that was a Twitter advertising platform. So basically, if you had a message that you wanted to have other people retweet, you could fund that campaign and people that retweeted your... Your tweet would get little micropayments of Bitcoin. That's funny. I didn't know that that was you. I used that one back in the day. Yeah, it, it was cool. Uh, we figured out that like there was no way it was actually going to make any money unless we had huge volumes. And it started falling apart uh, just technologically. And uh, by that time, Ira and I were both working at BitInstant. So we we were sort of torn in, in two directions and the project sadly fell apart and kind of died. I think it's still a great idea. Hopefully someone else will, will build that and take off with it. Do you have uh, programming skills or like... Nope. No? <laughs> okay. I know like the bold tag in HTML or the underline tag. I can make those. That's about the extent of it. So I'm always reliant on smarter people than myself to actually build things that I think about. So yeah, Feeds of Birds was fall of 2011. Um, and then sort of just after Christmas of 2011, Roger Veer, who, was, who I'd become good friends with, he introduced me to Charlie Shrem, and Charlie hired me at BitInstant, sort of the third person at BitInstant at doing head of marketing. So throughout 2012, I was doing marketing for BitInstant. And a few months after I joined BitInstant, sort of April of 2012 is when I started Satoshi Dice. And that was just this little side project that turned into a crazy phenomenon and has taught me a lot of lessons about life. That was quite a, an amazing thing that happened. And so Binnison and Satoshi Dice were, were sort of overlapping with each other. And then toward the end of 2013, well, beginning of 2014, Binnison had raised some money and there were some squabbles with investors. I don't want to get into the drama of it all, but Ira and I left BitInstant and moved to Panama and formed Coinapult as a, a formal company. Bef before that, Coinapult was not even a company. It was just kind of a technology stack, um, and BitInstant had been using that for its orders. And then when we split from BitInstant, we turned Coinapult into a you know a proper entity down in Panama. Uh, and then I did that for a year. Uh, and then start of 2014, I left Coinapult. And, but in there, you moved to Panama. Tell us about that. I mean, what motivated that choice and what was it like? Did you like it? <laughs> I remember talking to your, I guess she's now your wife, Michelle, and she, she had a couple of hesitations about living down there. You know, it must have been a big change, right? Yeah, well, so my my thesis from the beginning of getting into Bitcoin was that governments were not going to like it. And at first, they weren't going to like it because uh, of petty things like the ability to avoid taxes or for you know people to buy drugs from each other. But the ultimate reason they weren't going to like it was because it posed an existential threat to their own monies, their own currencies. And once they realized that, and they still don't realize that, right? They It's mostly through hubris that they think that their fiat currencies are going to outlive Bitcoin, but they're wrong. 
when they realize that, they're going to become very hostile. And we basically didn't want to build a Bitcoin company in the US because of that. I've since learned that it's far more important where your customers are than where you are. So um, it, it probably would have been just fine if Coinapult had stayed in the US, but simply blocked the US as a jurisdiction so that customers from the US couldn't use it. That's probably almost as good as leaving the country with the actual office and the people. So that's one interesting lesson that I've, I've learned. We, we didn't want to basically apply the, the tyranny of the US to the entire world of people who we were trying to build services for. We didn't want to have to apply ridiculous rules that the US politicians create to the rural farmer in Africa who's like struggling without even a bank account and just trying to get by day to day. So it was both practical decision to move down there for business purposes and also an ideological one. I mean, and certainly it was a, a statement that we were trying to make that this Bitcoin thing is far more important than the US. And, you know, we're not going to just tie it down to the whims of politicians in the US. We're going to actually go where business can grow faster. So you said that you that, you know, in hindsight, now you realize it's really about where your customer is rather than where your company is. So, I mean, like if you had it to do again, is that what you would is that what you would do at this point? You would actually just create the company in the United States and block the U.S. customers if that's a concern? Um, maybe. I still think that it's better to create the company out of the U.S. So like Shapeshift is a Swiss company, for example. But certainly if you're hesitant about leaving the country, just blocking the U.S. customers if you feel like that will help is certainly an option. But one thing I did learn, and this is just a general business lesson, is that there are some very good things about being in the U.S. for business, namely the talent pool, especially in places like Silicon Valley big cities in the US, the ability to find really good people for your team is, is hugely important, of course. And that was probably one of our biggest struggles down in Panama, mostly because very few people down there actually even speak English. But also there just isn't the tech education and the experience and the, the startup culture that there is in some of the places in the US. So if I had to do it over again, I'm not sure where we would set coin and pull top, we'd probably reconsider a number of things. I don't know if we're here yet in this sort of chronology, but what made you decide to set up Shapeshift as a Swiss company? Well, my first prerequisite was just that it wouldn't be a U.S. company. So pretty much anywhere else could be fine. We were considering both Canada and Switzerland because they have some relatively favorable Bitcoin regulations. And uh, we got a really favorable opinion from our Swiss council. So we said, wow, that's exactly what we want. We'll set the company up there. And obviously, Switzerland is beautiful. So that's not a bad thing. I noticed it's sort of a trend, at least in the last year or so, for Bitcoin companies to get set up in Switzerland. I assume there's a reason for that. But I always sort of wondered what exactly the specific reasons are. Well, so in our case, Shapeshift has a very unique business model. Some of the things it does are very specific to how it works. And so we wanted to find a legal jurisdiction where the way that it works was favorable in that jurisdiction. So, for example, Shapeshift doesn't hold customer deposits, unlike you know every other exchange that holds your money over a long period of time. So it doesn't hold customer money and it doesn't interact at all with fiat. And that's something that we will never do. So with those two facts, the Swiss Council essentially said that Shapeshift does not fall under the banking requirements of Switzerland because it's not touching money. You know, if you were exchanging crypto for fiat, then you would be, but we're just doing crypto to crypto and, and so far crypto is not money. And then because we don't have the, the customer deposits, a whole host of sort of uh, consumer protection regulations where you need to like put up bonds and all these other things to quote unquote protect consumers doesn't apply. So we protect consumers by design, basically by not holding their money and by just sending transactions out as fast as we receive them. And that with that model, legal counsel was very, very happy with that. So other companies that have set up there are not going to have those same facts. So why they've made that decision, you'd have to ask them. I know Ethereum did a lot of investigation. One of the big reasons I think Ethereum went there was certain tax implications, like them raising all that money would not trigger a tax event, which is good because if they had to like sell 25 or 30% of all they raised in the crowd sale just to pay a tax, that would have been pretty prohibitive. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by the Tokenly Project and our first product coming soon, Rentable SwapBot Vending Machines. Let's say you sell coffee by the pound or web design services by the hour. It's easy, fast, and cheap to create a token on the Bitcoin blockchain that you control with a specific name that represents your product or service and is made valuable because you'll accept it for that product or service. You'll create a coffee pound or design hour token and then rent a swap bot vending machine from us for $5 to $10 per month 
to automatically sell your new token 24 hours a day and 7 days a week. You'll set the price in dollars and it'll be payable in Bitcoin and potentially LTB coin storage or other counterparty-based tokens you might choose to accept. When someone with your token wants to use it for the stuff it represents, they go to your website, load up a shopping cart, and check out. When it's time to pay, aside from the normal credit card and Bitcoin payment options, our product token slot adds the ability to customize and specify what tokens you accept. Representing your product or service as a token is very new. The question really is, why would anyone want to do this? I'll give you the bullet point version. You can allow users to achieve price stability by not forcing them to buy your product right when they need it, and instead allowing them to buy it as a token when they want it, and to redeem it at a different time when they actually need the product or service. You can create multi-tiered automated bulk discount and reseller programs. Bitcoin blockchain security means your product can change hands as a token dozens or hundreds of times before being redeemed. You as the business don't care because you're paid in full as soon as the first person buys it. You can participate in automated gift exchanges, use your tokenized product to barter or trade, and even have your product bundled with other tokens created by other businesses who make their money selling your product to new markets and different users. As you can tell, I'm really excited about this stuff. If you've got an existing online or brick-and-mortar business, and you're interested in working on a pilot program with Tokenly to see if tokenization is right for you, email adam at tokenly.com to start the conversation. Oh, and today's magic word? That's shift. S-H-I-F-T. Shift. You've got until the 12th of May to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. And now, back to the show. Eric, what was the progression of Satoshi Dice? You know, it sounds like you started it as sort of a side project, but didn't sort of claim ownership until, you know, sometime later. And then you made some money from it, but then had to pay the settlement to the U.S. government. You want to talk about that? Yeah, so we can we can talk about, yeah, we can talk about some things with that. Unfortunately, it's a little bit like, like walking on eggshells because whenever you deal with the government in a legal case, anything that you say, like, and then will be used against you and they'll use things that you say to trigger various legal tricks that they have in order to get you in trouble for other things. So I'll try to be a little careful here, but I think I can basically give the the history. Ultimately, I'm here to like <laughs> grow this industry and to convey my experience where I can to other people and help them. So yeah, Satoshi Dice was the largest Bitcoin gambling site ever. Started in April, 2012. A really, it was really simple. Basically, it just used the blockchain in a unique way where, much like Shapeshift, where there's no account. You just send coins into an address, and if you win, it sends more to you, and if you lose, it doesn't send any to you. That simple little premise, well, well that plus the fact that it was mathematically provable uh, so that you could prove it was fair, which, to my knowledge, hadn't really been done in any large commercial way by any casinos ever, which is amazing. You would think that casinos would want to convey to their customers that their numbers are fair. And I know that when I go to Vegas and play on the machines, I always feel like they're cheating me. Like I know the odds are stacked against me, so I'll probably lose. But it always in the back of my mind, I'm wondering like, how bad are these odds? They don't even tell you what the odds are. And even if they told you what the odds are, you have to just trust them or the Nevada Gaming Commission. So I'm sure that that's rife with fraud. But <laughs> Las Vegas was set up by the mob and it would not be surprising to me if the gaming commission there has deep ties to that and it's just a uh, people, you know, help each other out and the the scams continue but but anyway, um, you know, if you're going to gamble, you want to know that the odds are at least fair, at least honest, right? That seems to be a basic need. And so um Satoshi I said this clever little mathematical trick where it could actually prove that your bet was fair. The day after you made it, you could look back and see that, okay, there was no way that it could have cheated you. So that was revolutionary. And also just the ease of which the bets could be placed revolutionary. And they could be placed from anywhere in the world, from a phone, you know, you don't have to sign up for anything. And it demonstrated the power of Bitcoin to do old business models in a new way, which I think was really important for people to see, you know, all these people wondering, well, why do we need Bitcoin when you can just use credit cards or, or bank transfers or cash? And so showing them that like something can exist, a certain business model can exist that is physically not possible without cryptocurrency, I think was really important for the industry to see that. So it got really popular. He was making a lot of money and losing a lot of money. And, you know, one thing about owning a casino is that it's like incredibly stressful because there are days or weeks or months sometimes when the house loses a ton of money. And you always have to wonder like, 
is this just random variance? Or did someone figure out an exploit and is like stealing money from me and I, I can't figure it out? And that was always on the back of my mind and that was very difficult to deal with. But I plowed through that and toward the fall of that year, I sold shares in Satoshi Dice, sort of equity shares on MPEX, which was a Romanian crypto equity platform. Basically, I sold 10% of the company so people that bought, for example, 1% of the company would receive 1% of the site's earnings every month. So that was also cool because it basically showed that equities, that, that stocks could basically be done on anonymous crypto platforms without huge companies like the NYSE or NASDAQ involved at all. It's just people building systems on their computers and now suddenly strangers all over the world can trade stocks with each other and invest in projects. That's fairly revolutionary itself. Governments often do not like things that are revolutionary for obvious reasons. And some number of months after that, I realized that like if I was going to be a popular voice in the Bitcoin community and I say a lot of anti-government, anti-government rhetoric, I'm I'm sort of this extremist libertarian that wants to leave everyone alone and that pisses people off. I realized that like if I was doing that and also running a casino, which is sort of in the legally gray area in the US, uh, that that was problematic for me. So I decided to sell the site. And I think it was a week or two weeks after I sold the site, I got subpoenaed by the SEC. And you know, long story short, I dealt with them for the next, I don't know, 10, 10 months, something like that, battling back and forth. And they, they wanted to get all my information. And it was obviously a nightmare dealing with people like that. And um, that's where I can't give a lot of details, unfortunately, even though someday maybe I'll, I'll write what happened. But uh, yeah, ultimately we settled because I didn't want to spend tons of money going to court and trying it, although it would have been a really interesting court case, I think. Um, I didn't want to you know, lose all my money and time fighting that for a year or two. So we settled. Uh, I ended up having to pay them $50,000. And then that chapter of things was closed. And the amazing thing is, of course, that the investors in Satoshi Dice made money. Depending on when they bought, the average person made quite a bit of money. And so it was amazing that the SEC would go after me when the investors made money because who exactly are they protecting? Who, who are they looking out for? I can understand them going after fraud. I can understand going after people that like misrepresent their product or something like that. But when the average person didn't lose money, what the hell are they doing? Right? What's their purpose? And I think it kind of exposed the frivolity of that entire agency, especially when there are you know, these massive scams on Wall Street all the time that happen. And then they go after me running this Bitcoin casino, making investors money. So anyway, it was a learning experience and I'm I'm glad it's over. <laughs> yeah, it's not about consumer protection. No, it's definitely not. I mean, I, I didn't get their permission slip. Yeah, it sounds like that's exactly what happened. You didn't get the permission slip and it's not about consumer protection. It's about you jumping all the hoops and, you know, obeying their authority. So um, I guess you learned your lesson on that, quote unquote. There was another thing I wanted to ask you about in regards to Satoshi Dice, which was just a kind of an interesting technical issue. I remember there were a lot of people who were kind of upset and pointing fingers at Satoshi Dice because they claimed it was um, spamming or bloating the blockchain. And I just wondered if you have, have any thoughts on that about, you know, what actually is the definition of spam or bloat? Is it just a value judgment? <laughs> It was really amazing to me when that controversy started because like obviously the goal of Bitcoin is to grow it into this thing that gets used by millions or billions of people for all sorts of things all over the world. Meaning transaction volumes, thousands or tens of thousands of times higher than they are now. So generally more transactions should be good if they're being used for some useful purpose. And you can argue that gambling is not useful, but, but other people disagree. And if someone wants to gamble with their own money, then that's that's their choice, just as it's their choice of what to buy at the grocery store. And, you know, admittedly, Satoshi Dice was creating a lot of transactions. Like during its peak, it was more than half of all the Bitcoin transactions in the world. So that much was true. But still, like if the system cannot even handle one gambling site creating some new way to, to gamble, if it can't even handle that, then let's just like give up on this whole project because it's not going to work. Right. It, it needs to be able to handle way more than that. Some people saw it as like a good stress test of the system. Some people saw me as like a terrible villain. There were people that wrote on the Wikipedia page that Satoshi Dice was a, an intentional DDoS against the Bitcoin network, as if I like created the whole thing just to spam and break Bitcoin. Yeah, actually, Luke Dash Jr. said that. Uh, he's <laughs> he's not a friend of mine. I don't know why he's had such antagonism toward me. Meanwhile, he spews like uh, Bible verses into the blockchain, but I haven't called that spam. He can use it for what he wants, and hopefully he'll let other people use it for what they want. 
So Eric, you've identified in the past, you've been involved with all these projects that have been really kind of forward looking and very interesting with, you know, being an early participant in the bid instant project that, you know, later went away, but while it was there served as one of kind of the easiest on ramps in a time when it was very difficult. You started Satoshi Dice, you started um, Coinapult uh, doing one of the first implementations of uh, an SMS dumb phone text message system. It was the first that was publicly available. We'd actually seen something similar being done by uh, Peter Vicenes. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Vicenes' company. They had made something similar. And so when, when we saw that, we were like, wow, that's that's pretty cool. So we built it. And then we may have been the first one to release it publicly, but I, I don't claim the idea is ours. So your current project is Shapeshift, which you said is a Swiss-based company. And it's doing kind of this same sort of logic built into addresses, don't need an account. And what problem that you've targeted specifically here is making it so you don't need to have an exchange account essentially to use the functions of an exchange. So why is that the project that you chose to focus on next? Well, basically it came from a need of mine. I wanted to buy some stupid altcoin like a year ago and I don't even remember what it was, but I didn't want to spend two hours setting up an exchange account and depositing and putting in a bid order and then waiting for a withdrawal, which would take another hour just to get you know a few hundred dollars of some random altcoin that I wanted to speculate on. Uh, and I was like, well, in the world of digital currencies that move instantly everywhere, why the hell can't I just get any digital currency instantly anywhere? Uh, and from that, the, the idea of Shapeshift was born. It obviously has a lot of similarities to Satoshi Dice. And it was an idea about a year ago, and then we got it built and launched in August. And it was built mainly for speed and convenience, but I realized sort of as we were building it that it was actually far more safe for both parties. It's safer for us as the operators because we don't have this huge financial liability of holding customer money. You know, if we get hacked and we lose some money, it's it's our own money and it wouldn't be that much compared to these exchanges that get hacked for millions of dollars and it can like destroy them. And it's also, of course, safer for the user because they don't have to trust their money with someone. The amount of trust they have with Shapeshift is, you know, a minute's worth of trust compared to hours or days or months of leaving their money at a normal exchange. So we tried to build in this sort of consumer protection by design. And uh, so far, people are really liking it. So Shapeshift is a centralized exchange in that you guys are managing all of the keys. But essentially, what you do is you let people pick on one side, there's one type of token. Like, so I'm looking at the list here and I see you've got Bitcoin, Dark, Counterparty, Dogecoin, Feathercoin, Mintcoin, Namecoin, NXT, a whole bunch of other coins. Uh, it looks like maybe 20 or so total. And so you pick the token that you want to deposit and then you pick the token that you want to receive and you enter your the address that you want to receive it to because you can't receive like Litecoin to a Bitcoin address. And then it generates an invoice. You pay the invoice. And as soon as the invoice has been paid, say with Bitcoin, um, and I'm converting it into Litecoin, then the service on the back end from your Litecoin wallet serves those to me. And uh, do you wait for confirmations? John, you can hop in here. Yeah. So, and one thing I think to point out is that we we never actually hold any users' private keys ever. That's one of the whole cool innovations. But yeah, in terms of confirmations, we generally will wait for one confirmation on altcoins, but on Bitcoins, we do not wait for confirmations as long as it passes a number of tests. So we basically have built a system to take zero confirmations, and it goes through a number of different tests to see whether they're whether essentially whether it's a likely double spend attack or not. And as long as it looks to our system like it's not a double spend, then we'll let it through in about thirty seconds or so, sometimes even less. So are you a money transmitter? Do you guys have a money transmitter license? This is one of these things, you know, exchanges generally speaking, they do this money trans. But I guess you're 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 working this in Switzerland and they don't consider any of these tokens to be money, so you're completely avoiding the issue. Yeah, we don't handle money. We handle crypto assets. Some of these are used as money sometimes, some of them are not. They're all interesting technological innovations and they're all basically data. Until there are jurisdictions which define cryptocurrency as money, which to my knowledge, that has not occurred. Yeah, what we're doing is not money transmission in any way because there's not any money. John, I'm wondering about liquidity, like if there are ever any liquidity problems with something like Shapeshift. I know there's like a cap on how much you can trade at one time, but it seems to me like perhaps, you know, some altcoins may not be in as high demand as people wanting to sell their altcoins for bitcoins. Yeah. That's a very good question. Liquidity is definitely a problem in some of these alt markets. So, you know, some of them, the ones that are more popular are pretty well liquidated and they don't really have any issues. So something like Litecoin, which has been around for a while, it has a pretty actually relatively deep market, probably among the deepest markets of any of the alts. 
So that one's not usually an issue. But some of these newer ones or some ones that are not as popular or particularly in our system, when you do an alt to alt trade, you know, if you do something like you know, Dogecoin to Mint or a couple of these less popular ones together, then liquidity can be a very large problem. And so we're, we're always trying to find better sources of liquidity and better ways to serve those to our uh, customers because part of the issue is it's not just liquidity but also depth in terms of the spread of the market you know when the spread is very wide and you know you lose a lot basically you lose a lot in slippage on an order book on some of these thinner markets it becomes an issue very quickly because you can't offer a consistent price to the customer right so do you have to have someone like literally sitting there kind of 24 hour 7 and making sure there's enough liquidity and going to other exchanges and waiting for the six confirmations and selling the doge or whatever yeah, I mean, to some degree, we, we are certainly always watching it and, and doing it, but a lot of it's automated. So, I mean, we've built the system in such a way that we can essentially automatically analyze all these different markets, find where the best liquidity is, and then we always offer the customer the best rate at the best liquid you know market we can find at that time. But the system does that, all of that automatically. All we really have to do manually sometimes, because not all of the exchanges will let us automate it yet, is kind of move the funds around as things need to be refilled. So if essentially one of our hot wallets is drained because a customer does a number of you know orders in a row, then we have to move it back and refill that hot wallet. I have a technical question. Go for it. Yay. Are you using multi-signature at all in the backend schemes? How are you securing the hot wallets from internal or external threads? So the first answer is that our hot wallets are small. Even if they get hacked, it's not a huge deal. So that helps a lot. For our Bitcoin wallet, it's not multi-sig right now, but it will be soon. So that's something that we're we're building. But again, if we get hacked, it's not a game changer for us. For the altcoins, we're not aware of multi-sig solutions for most of these. Uh, and that's just sort of because they're nascent. So as you know, if someone came out with a multi-sig wallet for all these coins, we would probably be their customer right away. Yeah, I mean, I think we'd like to get multi-sig implemented on as many as we can, but sort of as Eric mentioned, only some of them even have support for that. And the other important thing I think of and why it's it's much less risky for us to hold hot wallets than it is for a lot of these other exchanges is not only is it not very much in the wallet, but as Eric has mentioned here a couple times, we don't hold the customer's money. So if our hot wallet gets hacked, the only people that's out is us. It's never the customer. That seems to be contradicting slightly with the possibility of scaling the shapeshift exchange to larger and larger volumes of transactions. If the hot wallet is small and that's how you limit your risks, then you can't really scale it up for bigger transactions. How do you deal with that? Yeah, the relationship isn't linear. So like to double our volume, it does not mean we have to double the size of our hot wallets. Certainly to double our volume, it's helpful if we can increase our hot wallets to some degree. But it's always just a question of risk. If we're 10 times as big as we are now, we're going to have bigger hot wallets. So there's more risk that something could get lost. That's why we will have multi-sig on the Bitcoin side of things. But ultimately, the balance of funds relative to the business activity is, is very small. And this is different to, to most Bitcoin companies, whether it's a wallet or an exchange, that have a very high ratio of liability to current business because they're holding so much money. Um, a bit of a point to technical question to follow up on all of this. Feel free to skip if you don't want to answer it. In uh, Shapeshift, you haven't released, as far as I can tell, any of the code as open source. And as far as I remember, that was also the case with some of the previous businesses that you were involved in, Eric. Is there a reason you prefer closed source? Are you considering open source for, for the future? What's your position on that? Good question. So obviously, I am a big fan of open source whenever someone wants to do that. There are a lot of benefits to it. There are things on Shapeshift that are open source, for example, like our plugins uh, and, and the tools we build. We've open sourced all that. Um, but we're not going to open source like the core code that we use to design this. Uh, and people come into like our live chat all the time asking for our code. And basically, that's one of our business secrets. I mean, that's the work that we've done. We don't want to just share it with everyone. In some businesses, that works. And in some things that we do, we feel comfortable open sourcing it, but not for everything. Talk to me about the fees. I see that when I'm looking at this, it tells me, it quotes me a price essentially, but I assume the price is different from what I would pay if I was on an exchange. So what type of markup are you guys applying? 
Shapeshift's a little unique in that there is no like one consistent fee. So we can't just tell you it's X percentage on every trade. The way it works is that essentially everything that we do is just baked into that rate that you see. So our goal is to make it as seamless and easy for the user as possible. And in order to do that, we basically decided, although we are, we are exploring a couple different models on top of this, currently the easiest way to do that is to give the user one rate and give them exactly that rate. In order to do that, we essentially have to bake in a bunch of things into that rate. So we have to bake in the spread. We have to bake in depth because we have to be able to honor that rate up to the deposit limit with no slippage. So essentially, all those things are baked into the rate. And what Shapeshift gets out of it is usually just a little bit of spread on each trade. So for some markets, for example, Bitcoin, Litecoin, where it's highly liquid, that spread is nearly non-existent. We're making a very small amount when someone trades, you know, a Bitcoin to Litecoin transaction. But on some of the other markets, like we were talking about earlier, that have less liquidity, we have to take that worse liquidity into account, which means a higher spread, which means sometimes we make more on those, but they're also riskier for us because if the market moves, we could also lose a little bit more. But generally, we make a little more money on like an alt-to-alt trade than we do on a Bitcoin, Litecoin, or, or anything that's well-liquidated. One important point about that is that when you're comparing rates like us versus exchange, there's not just one exchange out there. There's not like one Litecoin price and then you compare Shapeshift to it. Each exchange has a different price for Litecoin. And especially if you're doing like an altcoin to Litecoin, then calculating those prices gets even more complicated. So in general, we are looking out into the marketplace, all the exchanges that we plug into and saying, okay, here's where we can get the best price. And then we build in all the things like the depth and the non-slippage guarantee and all that. And that rate can still be lower than what you would get a Litecoin for at some other exchange. So sometimes our price will be worse than what you can find at a normal exchange. Sometimes it's better. But in general, it's it should be pretty darn reasonable. And we always, you know, prices, <laughs> people are very sensitive to price. So we're always trying trying to figure out ways to get that to be more efficient and narrow. Are you happy with the penetration that the product has had so far? I mean, like, it seems like this is something where utility really matters a lot. Like Andreas was saying, you know, you're doing this intending to scale, especially if your margin is quite low. Yeah, well, people have really liked it. Um, they, they love the Fox logo, which is always fun to get compliments on that. But like in general, I want it to be a utility, like a resource that the industry can use to instantly convert digital assets because it should be frictionless to move between digital assets. And uh, Shapeshift is trying to make it as frictionless as possible. So that opens up new ways of working with Bitcoin. So like there are wallets that have multi-coin in them. So you can have several different kinds of coins and they can use our API so that within your own wallet, you can convert between these coins. That means you don't have to be sending your money out to an exchange. You don't have to sign up somewhere else. And it makes the whole thing more efficient and seamless and, and hopefully easier. I was actually going to mention that, yeah, you know, we've been, since I started taking a look at the APIs that you have, we've been talking about it uh, in the Let's Talk Bitcoin kind of uh, operating chat. And we actually wound up implementing, um, Nick Rathman, our uh, lead dev, wound up implementing your uh, shapeshift button into user posts. So now when users create new content at Let's Talk Bitcoin, they can put in a shapeshift address or an address that they want shapeshift payments to go to. And um, then people can essentially tip them in whatever uh, type of token that you accept at Shapeshift and get the receive the tip as Bitcoin. That took us like, I, I, we started talking about it and he had it put into the entire platform in like 45 minutes. Yeah, well, we, we try to make things easy for people. So I was just going to say easy is definitely always the goal. We actually had some, we were just at the Texas Bitcoin conference and a very similar thing happened with a guy we talked to was running a website and he literally like came up, talked to us, was like, that's a great idea. And came back 30 minutes later, had implemented the, what we call the shifty button into his website. So the, the whole idea is to make it literally take no more than, you know, 30 minutes, an hour to do a very basic implementation. So the shifty button is what you offer to websites and then they can implement it and essentially accept that as a form of payment or accept some sort of, accept like tips like we're going to do. You also have a button that essentially is for users and they can use it on the websites of other people who don't accept the altcoin that they want to. They only accept Bitcoin and you can essentially use this as a way to via Shapeshift make the payment directly to them, right? Yeah, it's a browser extension. It's called Shapeshift Lens for Chrome and Firefox. <laughs> And basically, if you have this installed, any um, Bitcoin address it sees on a web page, it puts a little tiny fox icon next to, and you can click on that little fox icon and then pay to that Bitcoin address any of the altcoins that we support. So for example, if you want to buy something on Overstock, 
you get the invoice from Overstock. And of course, they only accept Bitcoin. And let's say you have a whole bunch of Dogecoin because someone tipped that to you in an online game or something. You can use the Lens extension to send the Dogecoin directly to that address. Shapeshift converts it and then pays Bitcoin to that address. Overstock never knows the difference. They just get Bitcoin and then they ship you your thing. So what's next? So Shapeshift, again, like that's your project right now. Is this a five-year project for you? Are you just kind of in the in the catalyst stage and then you step back after a certain point? What is kind of your modus operandi when it comes to these things? I hope to be working on this for a long time and to grow it into something that's absolutely massive, sort of at, at the center of digital exchange, which if the thesis of Bitcoin is correct, will be a you know a huge, huge industry as the world of finance moves into digital assets. So yeah, it's a, sort of a pie in the sky project. And um, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to work on it for a very long time and make it huge. One of the unique features of Shapeshift is that you don't hold customer balances. Now, that's not a problem that you've set out to solve, but nevertheless, it is a, it is a problem. I uh, find that I get uh, tips in a variety of different altcoins from time to time. And I find myself holding five, six, seven, eight different types of altcoins in relatively small amounts, less than $5 most of the time. But uh, nevertheless, in order to manage those, since I'm not going to be running a full blockchain client or downloading software from various different sites, the risk to that is too high. I use an altcoin exchange as a wallet. Now, I know I recommend that people shouldn't keep balance on exchanges. I talk about that all the time. But in this particular case, I have nowhere else to keep that balance unless I write software to do a multi-currency wallet of my own. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I would love to use a service like yours. I certainly would use it for trading. I have used Shapeshift for, for trading alts back and forth, but I can't use it as a wallet to hold the alts. So I would recommend a wallet called Coinomi. It's an Android wallet. I don't know if they have a web wallet yet, and they don't have iPhone, but they have Android at least. And it supports all the major altcoins. It's a really slick interface and very nice. So if you want to just hold small amounts of altcoins, Coinomi is probably the wallet to do it. C-O-I-N-M-I. And actually in Coinomi, they integrated our API so you can convert between the coins in your wallet. So like if someone tips you in Dogecoin, if you don't want the Dogecoin, you can just immediately convert it within your wallet to, to Bitcoin or whatever else you want. So that's probably a better idea than storing it at an exchange. Certainly less counterparty risk. Fantastic. I'll be downloading that right away. Do you guys see Shapeshift basically increasing the use of altcoins? Do you see it as a pro altcoin thing? Yeah, very good question. And this is something that really shocked people when I came out as the head of it, because I had been sort of vocally opposed to altcoins a year or two ago. Uh, and, and basically, I was opposed to the altcoins because a lot of them were just stupid ripoffs and didn't do anything unique. But the more I watched it, the more I realized that some were actually doing things that were unique and they were providing important experimentation. And any of them that do something unique that Bitcoin can't do or doesn't do can can coexist harmoniously with, with Bitcoin and they, they help each other. So for example, like new bits or tether, they're pegged to the value of a dollar. They're stable to dollars. And that's very useful for people who don't want to deal with volatility. So using that and Bitcoin in conjunction, you can live in crypto world, not have a bank at all, retain the stability of a fiat currency and use Bitcoin wherever you want. So in that way, it's very good to have these different assets. Um, and in general, like Shapeshift helps all digital assets because it makes all of them more useful. And it makes them more useful in that any of these assets can more easily be traded with any other asset. So that makes Bitcoin more useful because it can be converted into other things better. It makes Litecoin and, and Dash and Dogecoin, all these things more useful because they are more liquid and can be more easily converted into something else. So it should be a, a net positive for the industry. I think some of the people that feel like I've betrayed Bitcoin because I'm supporting altcoins need to sort of step back and realize that like there are going to be a lot of digital assets Maybe only one digital currency, but lots of digital assets. And as long as there are digital assets, people are going to need to exchange them, and it should be as easy as possible to do that. Thanks for listening to episode 210 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Eric, John, Stephanie, Andreas, and Adam. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin. Any questions or comments? email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. If you've got an existing online or brick-and-mortar business and you're interested in working on a pilot program with Tokenly to see if tokenization is right for you, email adam at tokenly.com to start the conversation. Have a good one.